0: We are Irresistible, a community of practice in collective healing and social change, because our commitment to justice and to our own lives is compelling, joyful, and irresistible. Together we celebrate the many traditions of movement leaders, cultural workers, and spiritual teachers who remind us to embody the liberation we are pursuing. And who show us that our movements for justice can and must be expansive vibrant and alive because we are so much more than resistance we are irresistible hey everybody i'm kate warning welcome to irresistible a podcast formerly known as healing justice You can hear more about what we're all about and the many legacies that led us to our new name in a previous episode titled becoming irresistible so each week we share a conversation or an audio practice to support your healing and commitment to social justice and during these times of crisis and intensity around the world we are turning around episodes that specifically support our community in the immediacy of these times, following the voices of chronically ill and disabled organizers who hold a huge amount of experience and wisdom about how to build movements that are incredibly adaptive, creative, inclusive, and overcome ever-changing conditions while including the full reality of what is happening Um, for ourselves in our bodies our minds our relationships our care networks our economics all of the things right these are many factors that folks have organized among through over under between with throughout time and this is a time for our movements to really be doubling down on the way that we include all of our needs and all of our abilities in the way that we're building together And so this week, we are so happy to have partnered with JOIN for Justice, JOIN stands for the Jewish Organizing Institute and Network, to be featuring an important conversation that they hosted a couple weeks ago and we were able to record with them. They hosted a virtual panel about lessons for organizing in a time of social distancing from disability justice organizers that featured disability justice and organizing and writing and theater and academic and legal all-stars, Patty Byrne, Lydia XD Brown, and Leah Lakshmi Piepza Samaransinha. You'll hear them more fully introduce themselves and more about who they are as they go along. And you can access the transcript of this episode and links to the resources they refer to throughout the conversation at irresistible.org slash podcast slash 61. If you don't remember that link, it's also visible in the show notes, which when we refer to the show notes, we mean the description of the episode in whatever podcast app you're listening. So let's dive in. And the first voice you're going to hear is JOIN's fellowship director, Allegra Heath-Sout.
1: Welcome, everyone. It's so good to see so many folks here. Welcome to Organizing in a Time of Social Distancing, Wisdom from Disability Justice Organizers. My name is Allegra Heath-Stout, and I go by she and her pronouns. I'm the fellowship director and a trainer with Join for Justice, and I'll be moderating tonight. Um, I'm coming to you right now from Somerville, Massachusetts, which is the land of the Massachusetts, and it's just north of the land of the Mashpee, Wampanoag. On behalf of Join for Justice, I'm so excited to welcome everyone tonight. Join for Justice, the Jewish Organizing Institute and Network is building a powerful field of Jewish leaders capable of effectively organizing for change across the United States. We organize because, in the words of Emma Lazarus, until we are all free, none of us are free. As the premier national Jewish organizing training organization, we have trained over 6,000 Jewish leaders and expect to train 10,000 more in the next five years. We train rabbinical and cantorial students in seminaries across the country offer a clergy fellowship, host an online training institute called Don't Kvech Organize, and train and coach Jewish organizations and organizers across the country. I'm the director of the Jewish Organizing Fellowship, a year-long program in Boston training Jewish young adults as professional organizers. And I'm the creator of our Empower Fellowship, through which we train our fellows to work against ableism and provide focused leadership development for young Jewish organizers with disabilities. Tonight on this call, we have a very short time together and we'll just begin to scratch the surface of many vital conversations. I'm so excited to welcome our three guest speakers tonight, Leah Lakshmi Samar Singha, Lydia XZ Brown, and Patty Byrne. I will share more about each of them as we hear from them throughout the call. But first, to ground us as we start, I wanna share a memory that I keep coming back to these past few weeks. Just over a year ago, I Zoom called in to a gathering of current and former interns of Sins Invalid, the disability justice organization that Patty Byrne, one of our speakers tonight, directs. I was excited to connect with this community that's had such a big impact on my political development since I I was an intern there almost a decade ago. When I opened the Zoom call, the screen was full of brilliant disabled folks eating dinner in Patty's living room in Berkeley. G Gomez, the event organizer, introduced me to the folks I didn't know and asked me if I wanted food. I laughed. It was 9 p.m. East Coast time. I'd already eaten. But more than that, I assumed that he was joking since we were on opposite sides of the country. But no, Sins, a small and under-resourced organization, was serious. They were prepared to offer food delivery to my home. They were ready to do this because they were committed to making sure that everyone at the meeting had food to eat. And I was part of that, even though I wasn't physically present. This was just a small moment, and a lot of what brings all of us together tonight is bigger picture about how we build power and win what our communities need. But I share it because that simple offer of dinner reminded me of all the unnecessary assumptions we hold about how we do and don't support and connect to one another, including little things, like the idea that I couldn't have dinner as part of a meeting happening across the country. These assumptions limit our ability to build strong communities and powerful movements. In this moment of so many of our assumptions being upended, our movements depend on our ability to adapt with expansiveness, creativity, and attention to everyone's human needs. The three disability justice leaders we'll be hearing from tonight have so much to teach about how to do that. We're all here because we recognize an urgent need to radically adapt our work for justice. In order to be as effective as possible in the face of the dire challenges that we're facing now in this time of pandemic, we all need each other. So now we'll hear from each of our speakers for a few minutes and then have a few minutes for conversation among them. So first, I'm so delighted to introduce Leah Lakshmi Summer samarasinha um, Leah is a powerful speaker, writer, storyteller, dream weaver, theorist, and organizer. She's the author of Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice. Some of her other titles include Dirty River, A Queer Femme of Color, Dreaming Her Way Home, Body Map, Love Cake, and she's the co-editor of The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities. She's also a lead artist with Sins Invalid. Thank you so much for being here, Leah, and I'll turn it over to you now.
2: Hi, everybody. Um, first of all, I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts. I just wanna send a shout out to any Central Mass and trash Massachusetts people who may be on this call. Um, and also just wanna say hi to all the Jews of color and Zahi and um, other non-white folks on the call, um, as well as all of the beautiful, sick and disabled folks. So when Allegra asked me to be on this call, I was just like, okay, what do we do to get, you know, a lifetime of disabled collective knowledge into eight minutes, (laughs) you know, and kind of one of the first things I thought of is that um, I have this kind of bad joke um, that is, I've heard a lot of versions of among other disabled folks where sometimes when able-bodied and minded folks are like, Tell us about ableism, tell us about disability. How do we do this stuff? I'm like sarcastically, non sarcastically in my head, I'm kind of like, Well, you know, if you get hit by a bus someday, maybe you'll get it. <laughs> you know, and and I know this is sick humor, haha, <laughs> but also, um, you know, at this moment in the world of pandemic, I'm like, Well, we've all been hit by a bus in different ways, we are all in ways that maybe haven't happened quite the same way before, being impacted by chronic illness and disability or the fear of it, the failures of the medical industrial complex, the failures of capitalism, the failures of the insurance companies on this wide scale. And things that we as disabled people have been using and pushed for for years in terms of accessibility, like Zoom, like things being slowed down, like people really paying attention to washing our hands, are all of a sudden on the front page of the New York Times. You know? And like many disabled folks, I'm both happy and kind of having a sense of irony around and fear around, okay, in two months or six months or a year when there's a vaccine, will we just go back to the ableist normal, right? And all of these things we fought for will all of a sudden be too difficult. or is this an opportunity and an opening for there to be a sea change around us all really taking ableism seriously and remaking the world? So I wanted to start there and I wanted to then segue into Something I, one of the things I do is I work, I'm a writing coach and I specifically work with other black indigenous POC folks who are disabled. And I was actually just working with a client who's a sick and disabled um, queer person of color right before this. And they said this thing where they were like, wow, it's like all time is crip time now, right, for everybody. And for folks who aren't familiar with the term crip time, first of all, crip is insider slang that some folks in disability community use. Um, similar to the way a lot of queer and trans people have reclaimed queer, right? Like it's short for cripple and it's something that we use as kind of a poke in the eye reclamation of, yep, that's who we are. And um, the idea of crip time, um, I'm going to summarize the writer, Ellen Samuels, where she says, when disabled folks talk about crip time, Sometimes we just mean that we're late all the time, maybe because we need more sleep than non-disabled people, maybe because the accessible gate in the train station's locked, but other times when we talk about crip time, we mean something more beautiful and forgiving. We mean, as my friend Margaret Price explains, we live our lives with a, quote, flexible approach to normative timeframes, like work schedules, deadlines, or even just waking and sleeping. My friend Allison Kafer says that, quote, rather than bend disabled bodies and minds to meet the clock, crip time bends the clock to meet disabled bodies and minds. And um, that's where a lot of us are now. And some of us are, some of us who are sick and disabled have been in that world for a really long time. And some of us are new to it. Some of the folks in this call might be new to that in terms of our lives, in terms of activism, et cetera. So in terms of like, what's this disability justice wisdom that we've got to share, I think... One thing that I, I have a couple stories, and one of which is that, like, one of the main strategies, dynamics of organizing that I see us doing as sick and disabled people is a sense of ease and a sense of bringing disabled time to our work. And um, I was telling a story to Allegra and Patty and Lydia about. Two months ago, um, which seems like a million millennia ago in a completely different time frame now, I was invited to be on a panel at the American Studies Association conference, which was in Hawaii. And as much as I would love to travel to Hawaii, if it was okay to do so, there's also a boycott. Ask people to boycott who are not Indigenous Hawaiian. When I was asked to be on the panel, I was like, "Okay, well, I'm disabled, and I have to limit the amount I fly because it's not accessible. So, will you be able to zoom me in?" And they were like, oh, okay, of course. And then, of course, it was not that simple. And it was, you know, three months of Lydia, you were on this panel. You remember, it was just like the biggest pain in the ass in the world. It was like, oh, Zoom's so complicated. And even though this conference is happening at the Hilton, we don't have those resources. And So that was just frustrating and annoying and like really typical ableist gatekeeping. And ironic now that everybody, you know, major, you know, the New York City school system is like, oh, everyone's gonna go on Zoom. But when we finally, you know, won the right to have me on Zoom as a special exception. And when I was finally on the panel, you know, there were technical bleeps because um, people were new to it. And there were issues with the hotel, you know, internet and all of these things. And there wasn't the built in structural support. So yeah, there were some glitches. And what I noticed was that um, everybody on that panel, which was mostly able-bodied people was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. They were freaking out every time there was a glitch. And they were so apologetic about it, you know, around the, the access technology that we were using to make sure I could be there. And they were like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. So sorry. This is taking so long and i was sitting there and i was like wow this is interesting because i was just on another all disabled panel that i zoomed into same conference and because everybody on that panel was disabled it was like many disabled spaces i've been a part of where zoom has been a key way of making sure that people are present where if there's a glitch or the connection dies or we can't hear somebody we just that's normal and we just go okay we'll just stop we'll take a minute we and we don't do the thing i've seen enabled spaces doing bad access where say if somebody's phoning in first of all it's like oh god this is so difficult and then if the connection dies, there's this feeling like oh we'll we'll just go on without them they can catch up it's like we actually stopped and we're just like yeah of course we're gonna wait until that person can be on the phone with us you know we're just gonna we'll wait till we figure it out it's it's no big deal so in a nutshell the thing that i want to give to folks is that One thing that you can do to bring in disability justice wisdom, one small huge thing, is to embrace mess, is to embrace that things are going to fuck up, things are going to break down, things are not going to go according to plan, and that there's going to be a learning curve around using access technology, which like Zoom and like other creative ways of being together, and that you can move at the rate of the person who needs the longest to get there. And you can also, um, my friend Roman Gallagher, who's a disabled activist in Vancouver, Coast Salish territories, just posted a meme that was like, "Damn it, do we get a finder's fee for this information?" Because they're like, as disabled folks, we have expertise in access technology, and now everyone's picking up on it, but we're not getting any money or credit. And I think that where you have money to spend to reach out to disabled people to teach you how to do this shit real good, you can do that. It doesn't have to be money. I think. Beyond money, I think it's really recognizing that there are already disabled folks who are organizers, who are doing this work, who have been doing this work, whether they are a paid activist or whether they're folks who are actually pretty, might be pretty invisible in your community because of the ways that ableism makes it so people think, oh, I don't know any disabled people. We are everywhere, and um, if folks don't know where we are, you need to go find the disabled folks who are already organizing in your community. and ask us for technical assistance. Like, Ask us how you can support the work we're already doing. Ask us to be in leadership and what if we want to be or how you can support the leadership we already have. I also want to say that something that disability justice organizing really holds is that our bodies and our minds and their needs are not separate from the capital A activism. So if I'm having a panic attack because I'm afraid of COVID or I'm sick, or I'm taking care of a loved one who's sick. That's often in mainstream activism. That's seen as like, oh, that's some personal business. Don't bring it into the meeting agenda. And with DJ, we get stuff done, but we bring that stuff into the meeting agenda and it is part of the meeting agenda. And now more than ever, you know, we can't just keep our personal lives personal and sickness is not some dirty joke. That we've got to keep in the corner. Lastly, I would say... Cripping your idea of activism means it's going to look really different than you might be thinking. I mean, I something else I did today was um, my friend who's an elder, um, Latinx mixed Jewish elder, disabled and fat person called me and was like, hey, so take a deep breath. I've got some bad news. Um, my personal care attendant um, maybe is sick. And we were on the phone for an hour and I was like, okay, when was she in? What did she touch? Do you have a mask? You know, is there anyone you know who's safe to come in and disinfect your space? Okay, here's what we know about risks. Here's stuff you can do. And that to many able people might not be seen as a form of activism. The activism my friend Sachal does, who's indigenous queer medicine maker, where they're like, I'm driving around dropping off herbal medicine and Western medicine to elders and disabled folks who need it in no touch drop offs. For years, that probably wouldn't have been seen as real activism, and right now what we're seeing is those acts of care are, in, are some of the biggest forms of activism we need that right now, on top of also the policymaking and the pushback and the strikes to ensure that we stay alive.
1: Thank you so much, Leah. I really appreciate your insights. So now I'll introduce Patty Byrne um, to continue this conversation. Uh, Patricia Byrne co-founded Sins Invalid with Leroy Moore in 2006. Sins Invalid is a disability justice-based performance project that incubates and celebrates artists with disabilities, centralizing artists of color and LGBTQ and gender-variant artists as communities who have been historically marginalized. Patty's professional background includes offering mental health support to survivors of violence and advocating for LGBTQI and disability perspectives within the field of reproductive genetic technologies. Their training is in clinical psychology, focused on trauma and healing for survivors of interpersonal and state violence. Patty's experiences as a Japanese Haitian queer disabled woman provides grounding for their work, creating liberated zones for marginalized voices. They're widely recognized for their work to establish the framework and practice of disability justice. Patty, it's so good to see you. Thanks for being here. Um, So Patty, building on what Leah was just sharing, it's becoming clear, it was already clear, that a lot of folks are scrambling right now to figure out some of the practices and approaches that um, that you and other disability justice leaders have really honed over the years. Um, and so I wondered if we could start really concrete, sharing some of that, um, and then get get, uh, get into more of the, the grounding and how people might apply it. Um, so to start with, you were telling me the other day about some of the practices you've developed around access forms, and I wondered if you could talk about that, because I think that'd be really re- relevant for folks right now.
3: Sure. Um, and thank you so much for, you know, providing a space for all of us to kind of engage and I'm looking forward to more. And um, you know one of the things that it makes me think about um, kind of jumping off of what Leah said, is the the reality that we're all in bodies. You know, it's not like we're just abstract uh, thinkers that are somehow leaving our existences outside the door. Um, all of us are always, you know, in our bodies, engaging with each other, and all bodies are valuable, and all bodies have needs, and strengths, and desires, and oftentimes we're—it's and it's expected that our needs get kind of left at the door somehow, which is impossible. Um, and you know, all of us have, you know, a variety of needs. So one of the things that. Um, Sins and Valen does is ask people very explicitly like what are your access needs it's incorporated not just into um, every meeting but also when people first start engaging with us um, on a consistent basis um, we actually have a forum where people can say what their needs are which could include like you know a need for a uh, stipend to get to headquarters you know, or childcare needs or food assistance Uh, it's kind of anticipated that everybody's going to need something. And also people can contribute things as well. Um, It's expected that when we're in meetings together, people are trying to provide access needs to, or or rather provide access support to everyone that's there. Um, And, you know, it it can be um, as systematic as having a form that people fill out when they start engaging. We're doing that now. Of course we learned that when we, um, didn't do that very systematically and um, you know one uh, one meeting that I can remember very very clearly I shared this with you yesterday um, was uh, I was uh, on meds and was completely like I was it wasn't just nodding out I was like having difficulty breathing and staying conscious and so somebody had to get narcan and help me. Kind of get back in my body and right after that someone else had a seizure and they um and you know they needed a particular you know the lighting a particular way and quiet and you know a, a set of circumstances and then we went about our meeting after that you know it took an extra like 45 minutes or an hour but like, yeah, we're in complex bodies, all of us. And, you know, we don't have to be ashamed of our needs. We don't have to, you know, self segregate because of our needs. And, you know, we can actually just acknowledge that, yeah, of course, like we need to eat, we're human. You know, of course, we need to, you know, have our, you know, get rides, places, or whatever it is. I mean, we don't have to behave as though we are devoid of our bodies because that's just not true (laughs) and i think quite honestly that um you know people have talked about the organizing that happens in in the far right and some of the successes that they've had is because they um will actually for example bring food to people that are sick or you know engage with people and their real-time needs and build community that way and that's very much a central part i believe of disability justice work is building community by actually attending to our needs and um yes that's one concrete thing i can think about or i can offer to folks um there's uh there are all kinds of ways that this can be kind of documented and and incorporated into the work and i think that's a key part of uh, essentially mixed ability organizing um, for, because we don't know what everybody is bringing. You know, we don't know what people's body minds are bringing you know, what gifts people are offering. Um, and the only way we get to know that is, is really by asking people. Um, and so mixed ability organizing, uh, I feel like requires a, a grace and um, a willingness to not know and a willingness to learn uh, about each other, and uh, you know, a, a patience as Leah was saying, and to just work with, you know, who we are as we are. I think I can just talk a little bit more about mixed ability organizing, and uh, one of the, you know, even within Crip community, there's. A vast variety of the ways that we roll, right? As many as there are people. So there may be people with, you know, psych impairments. There may be people with mobility impairments. There may be people like who knows, whatever you know, whatever it is. Like whatever people are bringing. I remember in one one time, one of our, uh, my colleagues came in. They're like, I don't really know if I can do anything, um, and they're feeling really guilty about it. And I was like, Why don't you, like lay down and chill, and like contribute to the space in that way like you don't have to be productive in order to participate you know giving your energy and your beauty and just like lounge baby just like you know spread out and be beautiful and that's great like that that like totally replenishes me when someone you know just like yeah all of us like when we're like doing our glow you know like great do
1: that you know Thank you, Patty, so much uh, for sharing all of that. Um, And I think that that ethos of remembering that all of us have bodies and needs and that we can um, only organize successfully when we take that into account um, will be really crucial uh, as all of us adapt to our new situations of finding that we have many different needs than we're used to.
0: Hey everybody, this is Kate from Irresistible, and I'm just dropping in to let you know about a couple of the support resources that we have available for you during the intensity of these times. We have been working hard as a team both to create content here on the podcast and provide practices to support you, but also to really expand the ways in which we weave community amongst our listeners and guests. And um, really, at the end, this podcast is, is mostly about creating connection and creating learning community for our people. And so there's a couple ways we're putting extra effort into that in these times, and we wanna make sure you know about them in case any of these invitations are of support to you. The first one is that we have been convening live at 8 p.m. Eastern every Thursday night for something we're calling Care Circle it's a free event anyone can sign up to join virtually and we're partnering with our circle keeper whose name is bj Starr, who comes out of beautiful facilitation traditions like joanna macy's work that reconnects and the wildfire project and is holding space for us on thursday nights we've done things like have a singing night uh, where luaya from the peace poets came back and taught us songs um, we had a care circle last week called Honoring Our Pain that was all about lament and deep feeling, um, and we would love for you to join us if you would like to be part of a space uh, to just receive and participate in care during this time amongst movement family. To learn more about that, you can go to irresistible.org circle. We also have this whole library. If you look through your podcast catalog on whatever app you're listening, or if you go to irresistible.org slash podcast, we have over 50 practices recorded and taught by movement leaders and organizers that help us with so many different aspects of incorporating our full selves and our own healing in the work that we're doing. There are a few that we really especially love right now around rest, around letting go of emotion, around grief, around daily prayer. Um, There's a lot that you can find in our catalog if you scroll back through the podcast. So remember to lean on some of those recordings. If you're having a really intense day, you can always listen to one of those and follow along through one of those exercises. I know. I've heard them a lot of times, and I still do that myself just to have somebody else lead me through a moment when I can't really lead myself, right? The other thing we want to mention is that we're reading a book together in book club. So we're reading this book called Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm by Kazuhaga. And you can look back at the episodes right before this one to hear from Kazu in conversation with Carlos Saavedra and join us in study and reading that is deeply rooted in the tradition of Kingian nonviolence and is all about incorporating restorative justice and spiritual discipline into the tactical discipline that we bring to our movements and one thing that's really been helping me about book club and seeing you know responses from members all over the world that are reading this book with us is to really root myself in a time that feels so acute and so short-sighted in many ways like very immediate Um, to root myself in the tradition of history and in my vision for the future and to use this time Despite being in rapid response and mutual aid mode and personal survival mode, to also use this time to be in preparation for the future that we will be taking part in shaping through and beyond this crisis moment. So if you want to learn more about Book Club, you can check it out at irresistible.org bookclub And finally, a good pairing for this episode is the incredible episode that we got to partner with the the Cranky Queer and People's Hub to release almost a month ago now called Wisdom on Coronavirus from a Social Justice Lens. If you go to irresistible.org slash corona, you will find a whole big old resource list that we compiled. Some of that information feels a little bit outdated now. There's medical information there. There is um, recommendations from folks who have been living with chronic illness about how they're protecting themselves and each other in this time. There is information and recommendations about canceling and postponing events. Um, that is a little clearer now than it was a month ago when we were recording it, but there's still just a great resource library there, so we recommend you check that out too. If you didn't follow any of the links that I just talked about, just go to irresistible.org and you can poke around and find all of it. But we just wanted to make sure that you have access to the fullest suite of support possibilities and resources that we know about right now and we're so so grateful for this important conversation that we are getting to listen in on um, with our friends who are leaders in disability justice organizing so let's return back and keep listening
1: now we'll turn to Lydia Brown Lydia XC Brown is a disability justice advocate, organizer, educator, attorney, strategist, and writer whose work has largely focused on violence against multiply marginalized disabled people, especially institutionalization, incarceration, and policing. They co-lead the project on disability rights and algorithmic fairness at the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, teach for Georgetown University's disability studies program, and support the autistic women and Nonbinary networks policy and advocacy work. They're also founder and director of the Fund for Community Reparations for Autistic People of Colors, Interdependence, Survival and Empowerment. They've been widely honored and published. Um, For example, in 2018 NBC featured Lydia as one of 26 Asian Pacific American Breakthrough Leaders for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month and Amplifier featured Lydia as part of the We the Future Campaign for Youth Activism. Um, So Lydia, thanks for being here. Um, And we were talking earlier uh, about how in this moment lots of organizers are struggling because all of their big plans for justice campaigns have been uprooted um, and upended because we can't go outside and the whole world is different than it was a few weeks ago when we were planning our campaigns. And of course, um, you're dealing with that challenge too, but at the same time, your work in the disability community has really prepared you to constantly adapt to unpredictable barriers, similar to what Patty and Leah have been talking about. Um, And so one thing that I hope that other folks can take away from your approach is to focus on the underlying goal of a campaign or project rather than the idealized strategy to get there and then to be open to the many ways to meet that goal. So to talk about that, can you share a bit about the event you've been organizing through the Georgetown Disability Studies Program and um, your, your decision to switch it
4: to online? So I've been organizing a forum for workshop and discussion on decolonization and disability justice. And um, I had originally hoped that this event would allow for an in-person gathering in Washington D.C. at the university with the four facilitators who would be leading, and we had planned for that to take place on campus in a room where usually anywhere from sixty to eighty people, most of whom are affiliated with the university, will attend, and part of the reason for hosting that event in person is that there is something deeply human that many of us get out of being able to physically share space with each other especially when so many disabled people are unable to share physical space with each other whether it's because someone is locked in an institution or a prison or because someone does not have access to transportation or because somebody doesn't have access to information or a community to tell them that there's an opportunity to spend and share space with other people. So to share space in person, at least for me and for many people that are in my communities is often deeply refreshing. It can be reinvigorating. It can offer us something that we don't often get to experience. And when I have the opportunity to share space, with other queer and trans-disabled people and queer and trans-disabled people of color in particular, I value and deeply appreciate every moment that I have to do that because I usually don't have that chance, even if I'm traveling to do advocacy work, like I still don't necessarily have the opportunity to connect with others. But when Georgetown and everybody else in the country came to the very slow realization that we really need to stop hosting in-person groups or meetings or events for any purpose because of the particular danger that COVID-19 poses to us. We needed to make a decision fairly quickly. Can we postpone this event or can we shift it to being online? And one of the considerations for us in making the choice of whether or not we would switch it online um, I brought this to our four facilitators, who are all four incredible disability justice leaders and advocates as well. They're Aza Antarefi, Jen Durenwater, Najma Johnson, and Dustin Gibson, was that many of us who often rely on fees or honoraria to do speaking or presentation or performances, either for all of our income or for a significant part of our income, which is a group of people that includes me in that latter part, it, that we just all lost huge amounts of our income and for many of us we support many other people in community i don't just support my own needs when i earn money i support many other people and i've been doing that for years and many of us do even when we make money we spread that money to other community members so when i lost four months of bookings which meant four months of speaker fees and honoraria that were for me and for other people to live off of that was Pretty devastating and I'm still trying to work through that. So I raised to the four facilitators for the event we had originally planned. If we are able to shift to a virtual event, this can also be a way of making sure that you're still compensated for the labor that you plan to do and still receive the compensation that you were likely also expecting because we are all living in often deeply precarious situations. And at the same time, one of the shifts that this would enable for us is that by moving our event to a virtual environment, people who were from outside of Georgetown University would be able to participate. And of course, in making this decision, we're very keenly aware that simply moving it online doesn't erase other barriers to access, like the fact that huge swaths of disabled people, especially queer trans, disabled people of color, especially in rural communities, especially in Native communities, don't have access to the internet, either reliably or at all. And so moving this event virtually doesn't solve the access problem, doesn't make it universally accessible, but it does change the way that we're approaching access in planning and designing this event and this space and making it available for people to participate. Because there are things that we can only get out of being physically in the same space with each other. And there are things that we can only get out of making an opportunity available through a virtual platform to many other people and um, really for me what it's reminded me of is how every time that i've worked to organize any kind of event whether it's a social gathering space or it's a forum for political education and teaching is that we're never going to find a setup that works for literally everybody. If you're planning a scheduled event in the middle of a weekday, people who work during weekdays cannot attend. People who can't find childcare and don't feel comfortable taking their children can't attend. If you schedule for a weekend, people who work weekends can't attend. If you schedule for the one day that someone's service worker is not there to transport them and accompany them, to reposition them and feed them, then they can't make it that day. If you schedule an event to take place in a particular location, only people who have the freedom to move and the ability to travel can make it to that location. And so anytime we're thinking about planning like some kind of event like this, for me, it's less a matter of how can we make sure that literally everyone can participate in this one event and more how can we make sure that we bring this conversation or this opportunity for socialization or whatever it is, the kind of space that we're trying to create to as many people in as many spaces and communities as possible, even if that means it's at different times and in different places and in different platforms. And so it's been um it's been something we've been thinking about a lot, but we moved that event to take place online and it will be taking place on the original date and time, but not at Georgetown, because we are not planning to accidentally kill each other.
1: Lydia, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, so drawing on that and thinking about all the different types of organizing that people are doing right now, I'm wondering if you can share what would you say to someone who's maybe just spent three months preparing for a massive door-to-door voter registration drive and is trying to figure out what to do
4: right now in this new reality? So when sometimes people come to me with questions like that like how do we change this one specific event in a way that actually accomplishes its purpose? And for me, that's the core question. What is it that you're trying to do and how else can we get there? Because once we discard the idea that there's one particular way in which we have to do something, you have to go knock on people's doors and talk to them face to face in order to get people registered to vote and let people know you can register for vote now, you are allowed to re- vote again, um, you have been re-enfranchised and let us help you fill up voter registration form, we begin to realize you don't necessarily have to knock on someone's door and talk to them to give a person the same information for some people of course that would be the best way for a person to engage to learn about what is happening and to decide whether or not they're interested in registering to vote but if the purpose of the voter registration drive is to get the information about voting and voter registration out to the community of people who didn't know that they could register to vote either because they didn't realize that they are now a resident, they didn't realize that having a particular history in the criminal legal system no longer precludes them from voting or for any other reason that they might not have known about it. it, doesn't have to mean that you knock on their door and have a conversation. Getting the information out in front of people could mean asking grocery stores which are still allowed to be open in every state, in every city, even the ones that went into lockdown, Can you post voter registration information in the checkout aisles? Can you post it by the door or in the windows? Asking post offices that are still open, can you post this information? Asking school districts that are sending mail home to families on paper or sending emails to include information about voter registration in those emails. You could not knock on someone's door and with hopefully sanitized hands leave paperwork on someone's door, on someone's doorstep or in their mailbox. Technically, the mailbox thing is illegal, but I don't really care about the law. Also, I just realized this is recorded and I'm a lawyer, but you know what? It's fine. I don't care about laws that don't make sense or aren't just, which is how we all should feel, but unfortunately not enough people do. Um, But you can give people information in ways that don't rely upon having to knock on their door and have a face-to-face conversation. You can put the information on Facebook. You can put the information on Instagram. You can put the information in on telephone polls. You can put the information in any place that is allowed to still be open and operating. You can ask restaurants if they'll carry flyers and, and forms for voter registration and put them near the front where the takeout menus are, since restaurants are still open for carryout and delivery. You can ask if the people who are already organizing mutual aid networks were folks are doing grocery shopping for each other, where folks are picking up needed medical supplies for each other, if we can also carry the same types of flyers with us so that we can drop it off, so that even if the person that has asked, can you make sure to bring these groceries to me, is already registered to vote or doesn't care about registering to vote, they also have copies that they could share with other people too. You don't have to have face-to-face contact to share information with people. And really, in that example, That's what the purpose of a voter registration drive is. It's to share information with people. And to the extent that people who want to register to vote need help to provide assistance. And you can provide that assistance over the phone or by a video call or online or an instruction sheet or standing 10 feet away and yelling at each other. Or better yet, if you actually know ASL or a local sign language, you could sign to each other as long as you're within close enough distance to tell what's happening. If someone wanted to take a calculated risk and sign closer, or someone needs to pro-tactile sign, they can do that. You can get information to people without having to knock on hundreds of people's doors. Yeah. Wow. Thank you all
1: so much for this brilliance. So now we have a few minutes. Um, uh, If any of you want to share reactions building on what you've heard from each other.
4: This is Lydia. I want to add to Leah's earlier story from the ASA conference. The panel that we were on together, which was the one of mostly disabled people, not the one of the abled people panicking, um, in our panel, the original person who was set to moderate our session, who's also neurodivergent and disabled, realized basically the night before morning of that they weren't in a headspace where they would be able to do that. And because they had taken on a number of other responsibilities, like multiply marginalized, neurodivergent and disabled people often end up taking on the brunt of work and that they, they were not sure they could go through with it, but they were telling me in a private conversation that they felt obligated to because they had signed up to, they were already filling in for another person who was supposed to originally do it and couldn't come at all. And I said, you know, I have enough spoons and headspace to do that. I, I can fill in that role so that you don't have to. And um, I was supposed to be participating in the panel as a panelist and I just, I filled the role of moderator instead because, um, they were not in a headspace where they could do that and we needed to have at least some modicum of organization to minimally function where we knew what was going on. We had some coordination between us and, um, I just remember, you know, that happened also organically and messily, very imperfectly, but I think it was fine and I think that, all of the conversations that we ended up having in that discussion were just able to take place without worrying that we were just excessively burdening one person who didn't need to be saddled with that just because they had committed to do so originally.
2: Yeah, and segueing off of that, um, you know, what Lydia just said and what all of us have said at different points um, is making me just think... I think often in the ableist imagination there's and this comes up in organizing a lot there's this paradigm that either you're fully able bodied and minded and you can do everything and that's what a good being a good organizer is you're steady you're solid you know you never you never say die or if you have any physical or mental needs which we all do but if you have any that you're like hey this is a need I cannot do everything then often when I've been in you know, mainstream organizing space, there's some messages of like, oh, well, you should go home until you feel better, right? And there's also this ableist idea that really just always sees deficiency, disability as a deficiency or as a lack. And I think that one of the big things that's, you know, I really feel sorry for people who aren't in touch with disability communities is that we know that when we're in them, that there's such a rich abundance of options and creativity and innovation and possibility. Right. And the story that Lydia just told about, you know, just this like really beautiful dance of one person saying, Hey, I can't, I know I said I could do it, but I can't right now, you know, without apologizing. And then people being like, Great, I'll just, I'll just jump in. You know, it's, it really makes more possibilities happen when everybody can do what they can do, which is something that. You know, Patty and Leroy Moore, you know, in Sins were some of the first people that really shared like, yeah, like we all can do something. We, we all as disabled people, not only are our bodies and minds have needs, also we all have abilities and we all get to throw those in and make this amazing salad of cross-disability solidarity. And it's always complicated and messy and we're always dealing with things that we didn't expect but it still happens. Um, I also just wanted to say something quickly about the communication piece. Um, I just want to really lift up that like as disabled people, we are incredibly innovative and that, you know, everything that Lydia just shared about like, here's a million different ways you could pivot your kind of traditional door to door door knocking, you know, uh, campaign. It makes me think of my friend Shira Hassan, who um, used to run the Young Women's Empowerment Project and um, which is an organization by and for young people in the sex trade and street economies. And she shared a story about, One time where there was police and harassment from other people where they're all kind of stuck in a building. And she's like, we snuck out through the basement and we couldn't use our cell phones. So we would chalk messages to each other on the walls, letting each other know we were okay. Okay. You know, and I was just like, yeah, you know, there's a whole lot we can do that's not a traditional inaccessible rally that was inaccessible to most of us at the best of times. What if we, you know, gather six feet apart from each other and bang pots and pans? You know, what if we, you know, find all these different ways that we have to be together separately and together? Um, It's like uh, virtually and in person is what I mean to say. Like, I just think the sky's the limit when it comes to disability, ingenuity and creativity and resourcefulness.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Patty, is there anything that you want to add?
3: One thing it makes me think of is uh, when things go awry and that's going to happen to everyone at some point. And um, just another concrete example is after that incident, you know, with myself and and the other person, and this one meeting, not only did we um, decide to have more kind of formal access needs identified organizationally, but we also had um, emergency plans developed. We asked everybody to develop emergency plans. So for example, if, um, you know, you know we, we work with folks, all kinds of folks, um, you know, in SINs. And so, you know, if someone is not documented, how do they want us to respond if I should roll through for people that you know, have a complicated physical reality if they should fall out, basically, how do they want us to respond? You know, they might leave their their meds or emergency contacts or whatever with us. Um, but the assumption that, for example, we would, I think many people would think, oh, well, let's call 911. In fact, like, that's not helpful for many of us but that we can decide in advance, like, okay, this is, you know, this is what I want to have happen. Should my former partner who is abusive, you know, shows up or this is what I would like for folks to do, you know, if I have a seizure or if there is uh, you know, police intervention. Um, and I think that, you know, we can determine for ourselves what our, um risks are so to speak and how they can be responded to um, and i just think again like leaving communicating that with each other and building the trust so that we can um, is a pretty awesome way to organize together
1: thank you so much patty uh, thank you all so much Uh, Yeah, for me, living in this age of pandemic uh, often makes me feel closed off. um, and that this, this conversation that we're having tonight um, reminds me of all the possibilities for feeling open and expansive instead And I'm so excited about the ways that hopefully everyone listening Can look for opportunities to bring that open expansive Spirit to the organizing that they're doing so that we can really do Everything that it takes and everything that we can to be effective in this moment. So thank you all so much um, To dig in deeper with your learning about disability justice Get yourself a copy of the second edition of Skin, Tooth, and Bone, which is an amazing primer all about disability justice from Sins Invalid. Uh, and also stay tuned for news about Sins Invalid's upcoming show, uh, We Love Like Barnacles, Crypt Lives, and Climate Chaos. In addition, uh, the Crypt Fund is another resource that you can donate to that uh, pooling money for chronically ill, disabled, and immunocompromised people in serious financial need during this ongoing time of love, coronavirus, and apocalyptic joy and pain. Um, So there's a link to that as well. Uh, And one final resource I'll share is a Know Your Rights Toolkit for people facing potential triage discrimination based on disability or weight during the COVID-19 pandemic. The document covers rights and strategies for fat and disabled people of all ages navigating medical care um, in this time. So thank you again to our panelists and thank you so much for everyone who's joined us. I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation and working for justice with all of you.
0: Thank you so much to Allegra, Leah, Patty and Lydia for sharing that insightful conversation with us. You can find all of the links that allegra just referred to as well as a transcript of this episode in the show notes or via the direct link that is irresistible.org podcast 61 if you felt excited about studying and learning more join who's the organization that hosted that conversation is opening up a disability justice online course soon. And registration is also open for their organizing virtual course called Don't Kvetch Organize. And so you can find that link in the show notes too. If this episode was helpful to you, please leave us a positive rating and review in whichever app you're listening. That helps us continue to bring you more conversations like this one. You can check out our vast library of conversations and practices for collective healing and social change on our website, including our full catalog from our previous name, Healing Justice Podcast. While you're there, you can join our email list to stay in the know, access transcripts and accessibility information, and also sign up for the weekly care circles that we're offering at least through the end of April online on Thursdays. So to check out all of that and learn more, you can go to irresistible.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram at Irresistible Movements and Twitter at Hey where we are sharing all this season about our sources and inspiration and journey in growing into this new name and honoring many of the teachers and sources and comrades who are becoming irresistible alongside us. Thank you so much to our brilliant guests that spoke and shared your wisdom on this episode, as well as the behind the scenes team at JOIN for your work, including David, RB, Allegra, and so many more. Thank you to Mira Al-Rahim for being our producer on this episode, Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for mastering and mixing, and Allison Thompson for your work on social media irresistible podcast is supported by calliopeia foundation dedicated to reconnecting ecology culture and spirituality learn more at calliopeia.org and looking forward to hearing you right back here next week sending love